Dirty Bird Podcast contains foul language and is not appropriate for young fledglings. Listener discretion is advised. Our intro music is brought to you by Ricky Pistone, aka Dick Piston. And our outro music is brought to you by the Sidewalk Slammers. Check them out wherever you get your music. Are you looking for a podcast today? With ornithology and humor you crave? Well, I know all these guys and it's birds they like. It's Dirty Bird. Yeah, they're just a couple guys who really like birds. It's Dirty Bird. Yeah, they're pretty dirty, but they really like birds. I got a natty fright. Spoopy natty. <laughs> yep. What do you got? Uh, I got the old lime green. Pale ale. Yep. Nice. Nice, bro. All right. Well, yeah. how about we start some Dirty Bird? Let's do it. Okay. Hello, and welcome to Dirty Bird Podcast. In each episode, I tell you everything you need to know about an individual bird species in a laid-back manner. And today I'm joined by Tim. Tim, how's it going? It's growing great, John. Happy to be back on the podcast. Always a pleasure and uh, excited to talk about another Dirty Birdie today. It's always good to have you back, man. (laughs) Um, I will mention that I have a dog laying at my feet right now. Um, (laughs) Larry, a uh, Labrador uh, Mastiff mix. He's not making much noise right now, but he might pretty soon here. How how about your dogs, Tim? I'm surprised you got Buster and uh, Cooper under control. Yeah, they're actually uh, they're getting the rare you know shut out of the office treatment right now, <laughs> just because uh, you know they're they get excited by different noises and start you know playing with each other and wrestling so. That would have made a, a little bit of a racket. So hopefully they stay quiet in the background. But uh, they do miss their bud, Larry. They enjoyed playing with him uh, last time they all got to visit together. And um, I'm sure Larry makes a nice nice like foot blanket there. Yeah, he actually does, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, how's, just speaking of birds in general, Tim, how's everything going in Charlotte with your uh, little home feeder? Yeah, it's good. Um, it's been, you know, pretty steadily busy at the feeders uh, through the, you know, the transition to the fall. It's still not all that cold here yet, um, but I think the, most of the birds are, you know, preparing, trying to stock up on their on their feed stores. And uh, there's a, a downy that comes, you know, every day, multiple nice. times, which is cool to see the occasional red bellied. Um, so, you know, I always like the, the woodpeckers and getting to see those. And then, you um, We've talked about the brown-headed nuthatches that come by pretty often, which is... That is... I'm jealous of that. Yeah, it's really cool to see. They're, I think they're actually the most regular species at my feeders, which is awesome. Wow. Yeah, so I enjoy seeing them, and, you know, it's fun to... And I've got a pretty open view of the backyard, so it's cool to watch them, you know, come to the feeder, and they'll, they'll grab a bite, and then I can still watch them, you know, go and you know, interact on the, the different trees that are nearby and stuff like that. So, yeah, it's cool to see. 
dude that's that's tight man um yeah and i know uh wait doesn't like is it cooper or buster that likes to try to chase after the birds but like we'll never ever ever catch them yeah <laughs> they both enjoy you know when we first go outside and there's a you know a whole group at the feeder they'll that's the first thing they'll see and they'll go over and it's like they want to you know see what what the deal is with the birds and see if they're you know potential playmates but <laughs> the birds birds quickly evacuate the premises entirely <laughs> oh my god yeah larry um so my my bird feeder situation here is like incredibly disappointing you know i have like everything set out you know yeah i got suet i got like seed cakes i got the platform feeder i got like the squirrel proof feeder i got safflower seeds you know and like mm. really not that much comes around there's like a pair of cardinals there's mm. like um i mean uh every once in a while i see like maybe a blue jay come by some yeah. house finches um some chickadees um but like the morning doves are like my regular visitors. Like there's like mm, okay. three, like two or four, you know, every day morning doves. They're either on the platform feeder or on the ground. Like they're the ones that are always visiting. And so right. you know, I, they're like my my regulars. You know, <laughs> if I have a bird feeder restaurant out there, they're, they're the yeah. regulars. <laughs> Um, but Larry freaking loves to just charge out and chase. <laughs> they probably make for a, I'm sure they make for a good, like, cause they're a little slower, I think, than a lot of songbirds probably to, you know, get so, up yeah. off the ground and get going. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So he like thinks he has a chance. Maybe. <laughs> but, oh man. I'm like, come on, dude. We're trying to attract people here. Like, yeah, <laughs> I'm trying to get people into this restaurant, you know, and right, right. Larry's just scaring them a rope. This scary bouncer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Well, um, before we start this episode also, dude, I have two new reviews. Really? Awesome. Yeah. I Let's was, hear uh, them. Yeah. Were they good ones? Every review is a good review, Tim. Of course, of course. <laughs> oh, shit. My phone just died. <laughs> you want me to try to pull it out? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, Tim, uh, you're going to read out the reviews here. Uh, why, why don't you start with the He-Man one? <laughs> Yeah, we'll read uh, He-Man's review first. Um, so, He-Man uh, loves the podcast. Five stars, obviously. He says, a great podcast that keeps me engaged as I navigate through the bird world. John adds a little zip and zing to his wonderful bird podcast. <laughs> oh, zip his show. and zing. <laughs> yeah, both of them. <laughs> That's a big compliment. John adds a little zip and zing to his wonderful bird podcast, making his show so easy to digest. There's even an episode that touch upon murder, Ooh, but birds murder. are involved. Plumage wars. This face. <laughs> <laughs> I guess we're podcasting, so that's, that's not really effective. Thanks for enlightening me, John. Keep it going. I listen to every episode. Thanks, He-Man, for the review. Yeah. Thank you, He-Man. And then, yeah, do you want to take a knack at pronouncing the other name? <laughs> I probably should not even try, but my best jab at it is Kwizakranizaj. Um, and I'm yeah. sorry if that's something that is 
you know, actually a name that's supposed to be able to be <laughs> pronounced or if is. that's just, but it, I, it looks like it's kind of just a random it looks assortment like, of letters. <laughs> yeah. It looks like they just mash on a keyboard. <laughs> yeah. So, if that's an actual name, then uh, please let us know. But no, yes. but, <laughs> we're going with mashed on the keyboard. All right. Yeah, what what do they say there, Tim? They have to say birds are great. And so is John. Love this podcast. I love birds and I've enjoyed learning about them. John is a great host. Clearly does his research and is passionate and enthusiastic about his subject. Great sound quality as well. Oh, hey. That's awesome. Love the the positive reviews and, you know, people love the show. There's no denying it. That's awesome. Yeah, and He-Man and Chris Nakashurik. It sounds like something from Dune. Have you (laughs) seen Dune, Timmy? I have, yeah. yeah. I was tempted to. Uh, I only I read like half of the book, but then I realized, you know, I had gotten through the point where the movie was going to go to, so I went ahead and watched it. Nice, nice. We're um, excited for those reviews, and let us know if you want some stickers for sure. Definitely. Um, all right. Well, let's carry on talking about today's bird, which is the shoebill stork, and it's going to be a fun one. Yes, for sure. Um, I'm going to call this episode If the Shoebill Fits. <laughs> uh, and thanks to Amanda Kanda for suggesting this episode. Oh, yeah. How about that? Amanda Kanda. Yes, that is her real name. <laughs> and uh, she's a good friend of ours. She's dating our longtime friend Cole. Um, she also recently started a job as a vet tech, I think. So uh, Nice. Yeah, I wonder, Amanda Kanda, have you had any bird patients? And, I don't know, let Dirty Bird know. That'd be, uh, I think our listeners would like to hear about that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, well, thank you, Amanda, for suggesting this bird, and uh, let's talk about it. Also, thank you to Dak, who helped me find some articles uh, to use to research this episode. Dak is like the unofficial Dirty Bird podcast, I don't know, archiver, historian, something like that. <laughs> he, he sends me articles uh, that I can use for my episodes, so it's freaking awesome. Wow, that is um, awesome. Yeah. But anyway, um, most of my listeners out there are probably familiar with the Shoebill Stork. It's a very popular bird. It commonly appears in documentaries. Uh, zoo exhibits on social media tim like you knew what a shoebill stork was right oh yeah yeah very distinct bird yeah i mean it looks like a freaking muppet you know yeah (laughs) i mean i'll go into the description in a second but like it's unforgettable once you've seen one and heard about it oh yeah and like it's pretty well known but i'll try to cover some facts that the documentaries and I mean, a lot of other podcasts I've seen have covered it too, but like, I'll try to like tell you something new and fascinating that you haven't heard yet. And at the very least, you know, a little bit of laugh at uh, Tim and I's stupid jokes. <laughs> so to start off, let's talk about that name, Shoebill Stork. I mean, you guessed it, Shoebill. Its common name comes from its massive bill. Its bill is nearly two feet long and has an odd rectangular shape to it. I really think it looks like a Dutch, like, wooden clog just extended out insanely. In Arabic, the bird's common name is Abu Markob, uh, which means father of a slipper. So, 
definitely other cultures also thought that this bird's bill looked a lot like a shoe. Mm-hmm. It also has some common names like whale head, and this has led to its scientific name, which is uh, Baleen Keps Rex. So Baleen Keps, this is from the Latin Baleena, which means whale, and Keps, which means headed. And then, of course, Rex is uh, Latin for king, like, you know, Oedipus Rex or something like that. So, mm. Baleen Keps, it means the whale-headed king. <laughs> Quite the name. Quite the name for this bird. It certainly is a, is a freaking king of birds as we go on to discuss it. <laughs> and that genus, Baleen Keps, it's the only member of that genus. And it's actually the only member of its family, too. A whole entire family for itself. Wow. Named, yeah, named... Uh, Baleen Cipitidae. Just for a description of this bird, it is a whale of a bird. It's four to five feet tall. It has a wingspan of seven to eight feet. And for its massive size, it's actually pretty light, though. It only weighs about 15 pounds. Wow. That's pretty surprising. Yeah. I thought maybe that bill would weigh 15 pounds on its own. <laughs> Seriously, man. That thing looks like a honker. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> This giant strong bill, like, and then the, I don't know, the bill is, I, I'd have to look that up again, but I bet you that that bill probably weighs a couple pounds on its own, and then the rest of the oh, body yeah. is, yeah, only like 10 pounds or so. I don't know. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, And, like, for such a big bird, like, you really wouldn't expect it to be able to fly. I mean, most birds that are five feet tall, like, you know, the great blue heron approaches that, but it's, like, much, much, much skinnier. Mm-hmm. You know, other birds that tall, like cassowaries, um, ostriches, stuff, like, they can't fly at all. But this one can. Um, and it doesn't usually fly very far when it does fly, but it's pretty graceful. Um, it holds its neck retracted like you would see in a great blue heron. And its legs are usually pointed straight back out behind it. It takes advantage of gliding a lot. So, like, it'll kind of flap and then just glide along the wind to try to get where it can go. Its coloration isn't too impressive. It's just kind of a slate gray plumage. It has dark legs, and then the bill is usually straw-colored. Sometimes you see it as, like, a more yellow color, but usually it's pretty, like, a dull yellow, even looking more towards gray. The feathers on the back of its head tend to stick out a lot, and paired with the massive bill only contribute to its Muppet-like appearance. (laughs) So it has this huge bill, and then it just has a crest of feathers sticking out of the back. Like it looks pretty silly a lot of the time. Like other wading birds, it has some massive feet and it has these long toes that help distribute its weight out while standing on floating vegetation. So, I mean, it's a pretty ridiculous looking bird. And I mean, one of the reasons why it's so famous is because when you look at it, it seems like a living dinosaur. You'll hear that term thrown around all the time about this bird. Yeah. Yeah, wait. <laughs> Tim, how bad was Larry's licking during? <laughs> Cuz I just realized he was like licking himself the whole time while I was Oh, talking. really? <laughs> I can Did hear you, it at all. You can hear it. <laughs> that would make for some funny background noise. <laughs> just 
Just a soft licking sound. (laughs) (laughs) I just gotta live with this freaking dog, I guess. (laughs) I'm trying to record. Hopefully the listeners are uh, are very understanding. I think so. Yeah, I think they will be. (laughs) So yeah, I mean, it's called like a living dinosaur, and it makes sense. Like everyone can easily Google and look up pictures of this bird. Dirty Bird Podcast, our Instagram, we have pictures of this bird. It's got a giant-ass bill. It's got a crest of feathers. It's got these insanely long legs. It's freaking five feet tall. Like, this thing is a dinosaur. Um, And especially those feet, though, are one of the main things that gives this bird, like, its main evolutionary drive because these birds are swamp and wetland specialists um they live on marshes and their whole feeding strategy is about just walking on top of floating vegetation and snatching up fish that are swimming around so they're found throughout northeastern africa sudan uganda tanzania zimbabwe zare rwanda the sud which is apparently a massive swamp in South Sudan. It's formed by when the White Nile, one of the two tributaries of the Nile River, kind of slows down and floods this huge area. Um, it's a stronghold for the shoebills. It's where you find some of the largest numbers of the shoebills there. Uh, the way they're distributed is there's kind of just a couple isolated populations residing in these swamp marshes uh, along different rivers in Africa. And uh, I don't know, man, like this is kind of a a cool swamp bird. Like I I think about the cypress swamps we have back East and the, you know, the Eastern uh, North America and stuff that Mm -hmm. uh, we've kind of grown up in. And I can only like our bird is the, the blue heron, you know, which like kind of i mean you know when you've like been walking around or on a kayak or something and there's like a five foot tall blue heron hanging out in the mist or something and it kind of sends shivers up your spine i can only imagine these freaking massive ass birds oh yeah that would be so crazy to stumble upon (laughs) yeah um and i mean apparently in africa there's a lot of like myths and legends about them as being like you know birds of bad luck or death and i mean you could definitely see it i mean that's pretty scary oh yeah kind of looks like a i'm sure if you were to you know stumble upon one in a in a misty swamp it's like uh you know coming across a mix between a dinosaur and like an angry old man Muppet kind of thing. <laughs> or uh, be, uh, Shrek. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> what are you doing in my swamp? Get out of my swamp, you dirty <laughs> bird. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so uh, that sud place I mentioned, this that's like, you know, Shoebill Homeland is the sud. And the name actually refers to the floating mats of aquatic vegetation that are abundant in that swamp and that they really love for walking around in. Basically, their long legs with those long ass toes, like they spread their weight out, you know, kind of like those, you know, those bugs on 
water bugs on lakes oh, and yeah. stuff that just like mm-hmm. skim across the surface. That's basically what they do walking along like all the vegetation that grows along the top of the swamp. The mats are usually made up of plants like Phragmites, which is a type of weed, wild rice, antelope grass, and most importantly, papyrus. Everyone knows papyrus. That's like what the Egyptians used to, you know, write on instead of paper. Mm -hmm. But like papyrus is an incredibly important plant for the shoebills to survive with. The shoebills seem to really love the papyrus and only hang out of a swamp if it has it. And when I say floating mass of vegetation, you know, that they walk on, just to give you an idea of how insane and big these mats of vegetation are, uh, they're pretty much islands of it. They're massive structures that the shoebills use like highways to traverse the swamp. Uh, I saw one thing about after floods on the Nile, there are sometimes huge chunks of these aquatic mats of vegetation that break free and they float down the river and they're up to like 20 miles long of aquatic vegetation. Holy cow. Yeah, that's gigantic. Yeah. So this is like a, like, I I mean, I'll get on on this later in the episode, but basically these birds have evolved to take advantage of this incredible niche, which is, floating vegetation over a river that they then walk on and use it to catch fish so like it's an incredibly like isolated and specific environment that you know they've just evolved to be masters of and it's really cool like you don't see this anywhere else in the world i feel yeah that's that sounds really unique i mean i've at least personally never heard of another bird that you know, primarily uses, you know, the, the design of their feet like that to, to actually use floating vegetation as their main means of transportation and feeding. That's crazy. Yeah. Certainly not one that big. I've heard of like smaller birds that, you know, walk Mm -hmm. on like lily pads and stuff like that. But I mean, this thing is massive. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, 15 pounds, that's a lot to support. So, oh yeah. Yeah. So it's really cool. So like I said, the uh, as far as the range of the shoebills goes, it's pretty scattered, you know. There's these kind of isolated populations of shoebills that are scattered across swamps of Africa. Uh, one study I read reported that shoebills rarely move over a mile and a half in a typical day. Hmm. If the area they're in becomes unsuitable to feeding, then they will move to find better foraging grounds. But for the most part, they don't spread around very much. They just kind of remain in their own little swamps. And, you know, every once in a while they'll disperse. But not really. They, they kind of like their own little area. Mm-hmm. So all those floating mats of vegetation that occur in these wetland habitats are really important for their feeding, as I've already said. Their massive bill is perfect for scooping up fish. And they eat a wide variety of fish, including catfish, bitcher, and tilapia. It's a pretty tasty diet. Yeah, that's a pretty good one there. <laughs> Eating some good fish. Yeah. Uh, w- one fish that they really like are called lungfish. 
As her name implies, in addition to gills, lungfish have a specialized organ that allows them to get some oxygen from gulping air. And the shoebills take advantage of this behavior. When they're out on those floating plant islands of vegetation, what they're doing is they're basically looking over the water and waiting for a lungfish or a catfish to come up and try to gulp some air. And, you know, when they do that, the shoebill's going to scoop them right up and eat them. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, apparently, the you know, the swamps are in... Um, you know, the water doesn't have a ton of oxygen in it because there's not necessarily a lot of flowing water coming through it. So the water's kind of just sitting there. Like yeah. anyone that has a fish tank knows you got to have like a bubbler in it, you know, to like mm. get more water. If it's just still water, then, you know, the fish are going to die because they don't get enough, enough oxygen. Right. So the fish in these swamps have evolved to be able to come up and you know, gulp some oxygen from the air. Well, the shoebill also has evolved to take advantage of this. And when it sees them come up to gulp some oxygen, it scoops them right up. Yeah, that's a really cool adaptation to, you know, I you never think about the other side of that from a feeding perspective. That's pretty cool. Yeah, you think, you know, they just evolved this and like it's good for them, but actually they've evolved a behavior that's kind of disadvantaged right. <laughs> for them. Um, often when they scoop down to grab those fish, though, they're also grabbing a lot of plant material, too, along with it. And whenever you see a shoebill scoop up a fish, they almost always have to kind of sift around with their mouth to spit out the salad and, mm. you know, gulp down the fish. They primarily use their sense of vision to hunt. What they'll do is they'll stand like a statue over the water and wait for those fish to come up and take a gulp of air before they plunge their body rapidly down. It's like such a quick and like, I don't know, violent like behavior that they call it collapsing. Basically, I mean, it's a very unique hunting strategy. When you think of a blue heron hunting fish, you know, they usually kind of just pluck their bill down and like, you know, either stab the fish or just nab it out of the water. But what the shoebills do is they're basically face planting into the water to scoop <laughs> up these fish. It's such a powerful movement that... Shoebills have to take a moment to recover and preen after they do their collapse behavior. Wow. <laughs> yeah, a failed collapse usually, you know, splashes so much water that the shoebills have to move on to a different spot to try to hunt again because they've scared away every single fish by face planting into that water. Yeah. I mean, that bill's got a lot of surface area, so I'm sure it makes quite the splash. For sure. <laughs> They're pretty solitary hunters. One study I read said shoebills spend about 60% of their day just standing and waiting for fish to pop up and uh, breathe so that they can, you know, scoop them up. So they always pretty much hunt for fish alone uh you'll never really see two shoebills together unless it's mating season fish aren't only things on the menu for them though they'll eat frogs snakes turtles rodents lizards uh other species of birds have also been reported on the menu 
And hmm. even the mighty Nile crocodile isn't safe. Uh, shoe bills oh, wow. will eat their babies. So that's crazy. Yeah, yeah, that's like the top predator there. But nope, if you're a little baby crocodile, sorry, you're gonna need him by yeah. the dino shoe bill. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, apparently their diet gets a lot more varied uh, during times of the year when the grasslands flood because animals have been like washed out of their burrows so then they'll feed in these flooded grasslands and they'll employ a more active feeding strategy like they won't just stand there and wait to ambush the way they would you know on the aquatic vegetation they'll kind of stalk through the field use their bill to kind of feel out prey and maybe you know some poor little mouse will run out and the shoe bill will eat it right up mm. and when it catches its prey it's usually not just swallowing them whole right down on the top of its bill it has these sharp projections that come down uh almost like one sharp tooth on the end of its bill this allows it to stab into its slippery prey and hold on to them. Hmm. Also, the sides of its bill are razor sharp. It's almost like it's filed down the sides of its bill, like it's got two knives hanging off the sides. And these are used to further subdue its prey and also break off spines. The big bill of the shoebill um, allows it to eat slightly larger fish than other bird species in its environment, like egrets. So it helps it fill an ecological niche and not really compete with them. So, you know, they specialize on the small fish and it's it's doing the big ones. I also said... <laughs> God damn it, Larry. <laughs> Dude, Larry is all over the place. <laughs> he's like playing with the blanket he's like eating a bone oh uh, no oh my god are blankets the same as towels or those uh, uh, good buddies he... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, blankets are Larry has a blanket fetish for sure oh my god <laughs> alright chill Larry Here's the sound hasn't been coming through that much <laughs> I haven't been able to hear him so hopefully it doesn't come through uh, in the dry season, lungfish will hibernate by kind of burrowing themselves in the mud. This does not stop the shoebills, though. They will use their bill like a shovel to dig them mm. out. It does compete with some other birds. Even though, you know, it's big bill, it can eat the bigger fish. You wouldn't think it would compete with, you know, birds that only eat little guppies and minnows and stuff. But I read a paper in Tanzania where African fish eagles were regularly observed stealing fish from shoebills. Wow. Yeah, the shoebills were forced to give up as much as 47% of all the fish they caught to the thieving yeah. eagles. It's a big chunk of fish. That's, that's a huge, <laughs> yeah. And the way that the paper described it is basically the eagles would kind of just hang around. Like it was like a gang of eagles. They would just hang around and wait for the shoebills to catch fish and then shake them down. You know, it was like extortion yeah. fees. It's just like... Yeah, the shoebills... It's what? just a bunch of... We are just a bunch of Muppets who are just going to come and take your fish. You can't do anything. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Those poor birds. <laughs> they never even retaliated against the eagles in this study. All they would just do is drop the fish the moment the eagles swooped down on them. 
Um, and interestingly, other wading birds like herons and storks were fishing in the same place, and the eagles never even bothered them. It was hmm. only the shoebills they were going after. Poor guys. Yeah. <laughs> Another bird that seems to pick on them is cattle egrets. Uh, hmm. Cattle egrets are an insect-eating bird. I've talked about them in the show before in my Avian and Invaders episode. They rely on large animals like elephants and wildebeest to stir up insects out of the grass so that they can snatch them up and eat them. Uh, they've also been observed, though, using shoebills to their advantage. Apparently, cattle egrets will approach like a shoebill who's standing there trying to hunt some fish from his floating vegetation, and they'll begin to approach him and forage all around him. And like, as I said, shoebills are ambush hunters. They got to stand over the water, be really still so that fish come up and then they can strike down at them. So when these cattle egrets show up, all they're doing is just scaring the fish away. They're, they're ruining the shoebill's spot. Yeah, come on, egrets. <laughs> yeah, so the shoebills are like, fuck this. And so they go to move on to a different spot. Well, while they're like walking through the grass to go to a different spot, they're stirring up the vegetation and they send small frogs and grasshoppers jumping, which is exactly what the cattle egrets want. Mm -hmm. And then they snatch them up. I saw that sometimes even the cattle egrets are so aggressive that they'll bump into the wings of the shoebills to make them move. Wow. Yeah, I mean, what what bold birds? Like, I mean, if I was a bird and I saw a shoebill stork, five foot tall with his giant bill, I, I don't think I would want to fuck with it. No, definitely I, not. Maybe they just know that they're, I don't know, they sound like they're pretty weak guys. Yeah. <laughs> they don't really, <laughs> like the eagles show up, they're like, oh, it's okay. Take my yeah, fish. here you go. <laughs> <laughs> So that's really cool about the cattle egrets. I mean, Africa has some amazing ecosystems. They seem so super interconnected. Yeah, definitely. And, oh my God, Larry. <laughs> he's like dropping his bone. He wants me to throw it for him. <laughs> and now he's whining. Oh, that I can hear. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, Larry. You're just going to have to sit there and learn about the shoot. Yeah. <laughs> No, I'm not going to throw your bone. Just eat it. <laughs> Just eat it. I've, I've had good luck with Cooper. I'm kind of surprised that he hasn't been, like, sitting outside the door and whining. But And whining. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, all right. As a demonstration of the amazing ecosystems of Africa... Uh, just as the cattle egrets kind of take advantage of the shoebills to get a meal, shoebills take advantage of hippos swimming in the water to procure meals for themselves. When hippos go into the water, you know, they're splashing all around and swimming and roaring and doing whatever hippos just do. Just hippoing around. <laughs> just hippoing around. <laughs> yeah, and this scares fish up to the surface where they're more easily scooped up by the shoebills. Hmm. Um, and speaking of hippos, Tim, are you familiar with a hippo griff? Yes, I am. I actually, I'm excited for you to, to talk about this because I saw something about this. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what's a hippogriff, Tim? A hippogriff is a, uh, I forget exactly what the cross is. Like I can picture it in my head, but it's a, is it a horse eagle? 
Uh, yeah, I think so. It's from Harry Potter. It's like some eagle horse. Yeah, thing. Yeah, that's all I remember. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, in Harry Potter, there's the one called Buckbeak, and you know you gotta like bow to it for to be able to approach it. Mm-hmm. So apparently, there's a shoebill stork called uh, Sushi at the Uganda Wildlife Education Center, and it has a peculiar behavior where visitors will bow to sushi and shake their head back and forth. And if sushi bows back, it's a sign that they can approach her. Uh, I'll talk more about this later on, but shoebills do bow as part of their courtship display. All right, Larry's breathing right into the mic. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, I mean, this is kind of... Since it's a bird in a zoo, you know, we, we can't make too much of this behavior. Like, shoebills are not necessarily the hippogriffs of the bird world. But it is a pretty cool, cool, crazy thing. Yeah. And um, this bird kind of became internet famous in, in recent years. And it's not just in recent years that, you know, shoebill starks have become famous. They've been noticed by humans for thousands of years. Uh, seven to ten thousand years ago, um, the Sahara Desert used to be a rich green savanna that was crisscrossed with rivers. Humans that lived there hunted um, a lot of animals that would come and drink from the rivers and eat the grass. And there's some rocks in the area that display petroglyphs from seven to ten thousand years ago that display images of the shoebill stork. Wow. Yeah, That's it's really a place cool. called Yeah, it's a place called um Tassilini Niager. And they left evidence of the animals that they encountered behind on the rocks um, in those petroglyphs. Um, it's a mountain range in Algeria and the rocks are basically sticking up straight out of the sand. Like it, it looks a lot like Dune, man. Like <laughs> Where there's nothing but sand and then these rocks poking out yeah. of it. And they have fish, antelope, um, and other creatures displayed on the rocks, kind of displaying that, you know, that place used to be a fertile area, not, you know, the wasteland that it is today. Mm-hmm. Uh, one drawing on those rocks depicts a flock of about a dozen shoebill, uh, kind of demonstrating their once abundant numbers in that area. So they are dinosaurs. The, they are dinosaurs. <laughs> or prehistoric caveman birds. Yeah. The ancient Egyptians also uh, display these birds too. Uh, in some of their hieroglyphics, you can see shoebill storks. So, I mean, this is a bird that has been well known to humanity for a long amount of time. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting that it's been able to stick around that long and that's you know definitely has some advantageous traits from what it sounds like with the feeding and everything but uh you know it's also just i think by looking at it it's not necessarily a bird that you would think would be <laughs> you know really uh just revered yeah, or anything. yeah yeah exactly yeah so, it's pretty cool <laughs> i guess it's i guess it's very noticeable yeah yeah that's true for sure <laughs> Well, let me launch into some of the breeding of this bird and, and kind of go through some of the facts here. Uh, so not a ton is known, actually, about the breeding of these birds. 
Um, despite being a bird that, you know, was noticed 10,000 years ago by humans, there's not a lot of research done on it, probably because it's a bird in Africa. I mean, the North American birds, the European birds, people have done a, a lot of studies on them, mm. but African birds, it's, it's very limited. It's a huge area of, uh, you know, ornithology that can be studied. But um, I found about two scholarly articles talking about their breeding, and here's what I gathered. Uh, Shoebills begin thinking about breeding when the rainy season comes to a close and the dry season starts. During this time of year, the water levels fall in the swamps, and it reduces the chance that a shoebill nest will wash away. It also coincides with the breeding season of many fish which assures a ready food supply for the hungry shoebill young. These normally quiet hunting birds can become quite boisterous during their courtship. They will engage in behaviors of bill clacking, squeals, and whines. They also will bow to each other and shake their heads side from side in a courtship ritual. So, yeah, that's exactly what that captive bird Sushi did, too. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah so i don't know if when people are going to visit sushi sushi's trying to make it yeah <laughs> it's just really disappointing right i'm guessing the majority of people that do it don't realize that's what the behavior is supposed to represent yeah that's what i think yeah they're like oh it's like a hippogriff yeah like, no nah, nah, buckbeak's trying to do you yeah <laughs> The floating islands of vegetation that we emphasized earlier, they're not just vital for shoebill foraging, but also their nesting. Once a pair bonds, they will seek out a nice mat of papyrus over some deep water to build a nest on. They start their nest by first trampling down any existing vegetation and make like a nice flattened platform. And then they'll weave some grass together to make a nest. Mates will present nest building material to each other as a way to solidify their pairing bond. Both the males and females will split the duties of nest building evenly. And in fact, they pretty much split all the duties of raising the young fairly equal from incubating to feeding to building the nest, as I said. Hmm. It seems to take about 20 days for a nest to be complete and ready for them to lay young. The female shoebill will lay about one to three eggs, but usually it's always two from what I've seen. She might take as long as five days between laying one egg and the next. Keeping the eggs cool is definitely a challenge. I mean, this is Africa, mm -hmm. you know, in the Nile, uh, and so the temperatures can get pretty hot. The shoebills will scoop up water with their bill and pour it on their eggs to keep them cool. They'll also place damp vegetation around their eggs to cool them down, which, I mean, that seems pretty smart to me. Yeah, definitely. They're really slow-growing birds. It takes about a month for their eggs to hatch. And when the young first start to emerge from the egg, they don't have that pronounced bill that their parents do. They kind of just have like a normal baby bird little bill. The parents will feed their babies by regurgitating pieces of fish from the nest, and the babies must feed themselves from, you know, the spit-up regurgitated uh, 
food in the nest. Now, here we'll move into a little bit of a dark side of baby shoebells, and this will probably be familiar to people that have like watched any documentaries on these birds. Um, while the mother normally lays two eggs, they only ever intend to raise one chick. The firstborn that's laid about five days before its other sibling is definitely the favorite child. And like it has a head start on its sibling. It, um, you know, grows bigger and faster. The other sibling is really just more of a backup in case that sibling somehow dies. Wow. <laughs> yeah, like it'll... It's rough. <laughs> it, it really is. Like it'll outcompete its sibling for food in the nest to just get stronger and stronger while sibling gets weaker and weaker until either the sibling starves to death or the stronger sibling pushes it out of the nest or, you know, he gets eaten by a hungry predator. Yeah, I don't know, Tim. How, how many brothers do you have? Three? Four? <laughs> Three. Three? <laughs> Three. <laughs> yeah, you're lucky none of them push you out of the house, dude. I am. <laughs> Glad we don't have the, the shoebill stork set up. <laughs> Um, but the parents do, despite this like brutalness, the parents do definitely display affection for them. Uh, they'll take turns throughout the nesting period to brood and protect their young. Each time the parents switch place on the nest, uh, so one can go feed and the other one can brood, they'll engage in this whole nest ritual uh, involving a lot of bill clattering, um, similar to the behavior that uh, the great blue herons display uh, that I mentioned in, in my earlier episode. Mm -hmm. uh, but they'll engage in a whole ritual display before they leave the nest to kind of, you know, pass off the duties. It's not until 90 days that the birds have fully fledged and are ready to get off the nest. Wow. They still can't fly at this point, and they're still dependent on their parents until they're about four months old. But, like, that's an incredible amount of time. Three months just to get out of the nest and then a whole month relying on mommy and daddy. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And even, like, after that whole four months, they still will hang around the nest a little bit and, like, kind of feed around their parents. Um like, because their parents know all the good fishing spots. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's really not until five months that they fully have their independence. That is a long time, man. Yeah, and at that five months, they're not even sexually mature yet. It's two to four years until they're ready to breed. Damn. Yeah, but they're pretty long-lived birds. Um, they live up to about 35 years old. Hmm. As far as the vocalizations that these birds make, they're not songbirds. They lack a syrinx. The syrinx I've mentioned in episodes before, it's a structure analogous to our larynx in humans that helps us talk. Um, but instead, it allows songbirds to sing. Instead of beautiful songs, shoebills make a lot of menacing sounding growls. Uh, it really only heightens their reputation as being a living dinosaur. Yeah. I read a study that observed captive shoebills and tried to define all their vocalizations. They basically found five different types of vocalizations. Clapping, moans, growls, grumbles, and vomit. <laughs> 
what a beautiful collection of sounds. Yeah, I think whenever one of your sounds involves vomit, that's not a good sign. Yeah. And I'll just say, I don't have recordings of all these sounds because, like I said, the shoebill is an incredibly understudied bird. But, you know, I'll play what I have while it comes up. But the clapping sound is basically the most dramatic. It sounds like a freaking machine gun. <laughs> It's mostly done by males, and once a, one bird starts clapping, the other shoebills will clap back. Um, it seems to be used as a greeting between birds. The moan call is most often done between males and accompanies bill clapping. The growl and grumble are you know, as they sound low-frequency sounds, they're not really uttered much. They seem to be associated with when birds are taking off or landing from flight or being handled by a zookeeper. And then the vomit sound, which is described as a long, noisy vocalization heard when shoebills are gobbling up fish. So they're basically really noisy eaters. Yeah, got to work on those manners. <laughs> yeah uh also i just wanted to say one of the reasons why i couldn't find uh recordings of these is because basically one of the studies talking about all this it was a czech like study it was all in czech i had to put it through google translators so uh-huh. <laughs> there's like no way i could figure out the recordings from yeah yeah <laughs> Um, I've also seen that the nestlings make a hiccup sound when they're soliciting feeds uh, couldn't find a recording of that either, though. <laughs> Were you able to figure out the Czech word for vomit? <laughs> vomit, vomit is sick. <laughs> it's like Janusik, except vomit is sick. Yeah, since my name's Czech, apparently. <laughs> That's right. Uh, okay, so some cool adaptations of this bird. Uh, like our friend the vultures, shoebills use urohydrosis to cool off, meaning they'll shit and piss on their own feet to evaporate and help them cool off. Good stuff. They also have like a little special patch of feathers down near their rump that has powder down, which helps them, you know, groom their feathers and stay waterproof. Um, oh, I found a cool paper that looked at CT scans of shoebill heads uh, to study their anatomy. They found that the shoebill throat and skull are perfectly ad- adapted. Damn it, Larry. <laughs> are adapted to large prey deglutition. So deglutition is basically, I guess, the act of swallowing. <laughs> um, the shoebill esophagus and throat are very wide and they barely have any tongue to speak of. So it leaves a lot of room for big fish to slide down their gullet. And Hmm. although their bills look indestructible, I did find a veterinary account where a captive shoe bill stork broke its bill. Initially, the bird only broke the left side of its bill and the veterinarians used some steel wire to just like join it together. They also clipped the primary feathers of the shoe bill, you know, thinking we don't want it flying because it broke its bill. Mm-hmm. But instead, the shoe bill just started to jump into the air with its long legs, like high up into the air oh, and then man. crashing into the ground. Ouch. 
Yeah. So that also paired with it doing that bill clapping behavior caused it to break its bill even worse. It broke it also, you know, where it had already broken it on the left side and then also on the right too. But luckily the vets were able to put, you know, metal plates in to heal the bill back up. Um, it took a really long time though. It was 13 months later that the beak had fully healed. Wow. Poor shoe bill. So that's some pretty slow regeneration. It sounds like just like they're slow maturing. Yeah. Yeah. I think you got a point there. Like you would think they would heal really fast, but no, it took yeah. forever. All right. Let me launch into the evolution of this bird. Um, kind of reaching the end here, but like, you know, I always like to talk about the evolution of stuff. So yeah, definitely. Yeah. Everyone likes to call this thing a dino bird. You know, you'll hear it talked about as a living fossil, that's partially true. This bird did evolve as far back as 50 million years ago. Um, that's only 16 million years after the K2 extinction event. So after the asteroid hit and mm. killed the dinosaurs, like only 16 million years later, this bird had evolved. Uh, a very interesting thing, though, when people like scientists first started researching this bird is it kind of defies classification. It hunts like a blue heron, it walks around like a stork, and it's got the giant bill of, like, what, a toucan? <laughs> I guess that would be the most similar thing. I mean, that's <laughs> that is quite a unique bill. It really is. And, like, you can see why people would be so confused as where this bird fits in on the evolutionary timeline. But yeah. actually, one of the first people to scientifically describe it was this guy, John Gould. He's, you know, a hot shot in the bird world. But he called it an aberrant pelican, which hmm. was insanely spot on because DNA and skeleton analysis show that the shoebill stork is actually most closely related to pelicans and a grouped order called the pelican formis. Wow. Yeah. Um, I'm about to do an episode on the evolution of pelicans, uh, basically a, a, an episode on the brown pelican specifically. So, you know, check that out if you want to hear more about pelican evolution. Um, but this bird does also share some relationships with the herons. I found this paper and it used bile acid composition uh, to figure out relationships between birds. Um, presumably like the more bile acid you share with another species of bird, the more closely related to it you are. I don't know. Um, the shoebill apparently shares more common bile acids with herons and egrets than it did with ibises. Um, herons, egrets, ibises, stork shoebills, they're all in that pelican formus like family. If you listen mm -hmm. to my blue heron episode, you know that. Um, but like, Shoe bills are more closely related to the herons, but they're still kind of in that whole family, you know? So, like, it, that kind of shows that there was this common ancestor between the shoe bills, the herons, the pelicans, um, that, that was pretty close. And I guess the bile acid kind of reflects on it. Yeah. It's an interesting way to compare. Yeah, it really is. Um, cause I mean, you know, usually DNA evidence for like a oh, slam duck that shows us everything, but yeah, right. I think it's cool. To, they were looking at the bile acid too, hmm. but like, 
you know, herons, pelicans, you can definitely see the resemblance, but actually the closest living relative of the shoebill is this little bird called the hammercop. It also has its own genus and family like the shoebill does. It also lives in Africa and it's also a very ancient bird, but it's this brown, like gull-sized wading bird. I mean, it doesn't really look like the shoe bill at all <laughs> so it's insane that this is its closest relative yeah speaking of like you know comparative anatomy with the bile acid and stuff i also found a paper that compared the microscopy of eggshell structure um, to a lot of different wading birds uh, the hammercop eggs are very similar to herons while the shoe bill eggs are more pelican like so, I mean, to me, the paper didn't really come out and say this, but to me, this kind of hints that the hammercop and shoebill are like these in-between species that capture a moment in time when ancient birds were differentiating into the more familiar forms that we know them today. Like kind of the hammercop is that in-between between like, you know, the common ancestor of all the pelican form as birds and going towards more herons. And mm. then the shoebill, like, is showing that change uh, towards pelicans. Yeah, that's a good observation. That definitely makes sense. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the shoebill, it's got its huge bill. It foreshadows the evolution of the pelicans. But, like, the hammercop with its pointy bill, it more closely resembles the spearfishing herons. It's a really cool snapshot in history. So... I mean, I guess I'm fine with calling them living fossils. Yeah. Yeah, just a side note to that paper I read about the eggshell structures. I could have easily missed something because it was <laughs> incredibly complicated. Like, you wouldn't imagine how insanely layered a eggshell is once you look mm -hmm. at it under a microscope. And these papers are going into detail about the different layers of the pores and the channel networks. And I'm like, uh, I don't know what the hell. I'm <laughs> wow. <laughs> so even though shoe bills evolved about 50 million years ago, um, what I'm really saying though, is that their common ancestor split off about 50 million years ago. That was like the common ancestral bird uh, that went on to form the pelicans that we know today. Oh my God, Larry. Stop. He's eating my leg. He's trying to eat my leg. <laughs> Got tired of the bone. Need some real bone. <laughs> need, need real bone. The fossils that we have of Shoebill seem to suggest they really haven't changed a ton. Uh, there's one from Egypt dating to the early Oligocene, which is about 31 million years ago. And it's been dubbed Goliatha andrusi which is a shoebill-like bird. Uh, it's pretty much the same size as the modern-day shoebill. Uh, it may even you know, belong to the same genus and pretty much be the same as our modern-day shoebill, but hmm. it's just like a little bit smaller. Gotcha. All right, so how are those shoebill populations going? And this is usually the part of the show where it gets a little bit depressing, where I talk about declining numbers of birds. Yeah, shoebills are no difference. There's some discrepancy as to what the shoebill numbers are at right now. I've seen it listed as low as like 3,000 and as high as 15,000 birds. There's no doubt, though, that these numbers are declining. 
In 2004, the shoebill was declared a vulnerable species. Uganda has actually declared the bird endangered. And from what I can see, it really leads the way in the shoebill conservation. As far as population numbers go, um, I read an article from this website, Edge of Existence, from 2019. It called like the blueprint for the survival of the shoebills. And it placed the population around eight to 10,000 numbers of uh, uh, breeding birds. Uh, this is based on population surveys from various areas that were taken from 2007 to 2013. So, I mean, I think that's probably the most accurate thing is there's probably eight to 10,000 of these birds. 15,000 mm-hmm. is the most optimistic. I mean, that's that's really not a lot at all. That's still a yeah, really small number, man. The major factor in their decline is habitat destruction. I mean, countries in Africa are rapidly developing. Farmers and businesses um, approach nature very similar to how America did in the 1800s and 1900s. I mean, mm-hmm. think about it. You know, we were draining swamps. We were building dams, digging canals clearing habitat for cattle grazing. So, I mean, Africa is doing the exact same thing. Um, Fires are also a a major problem um, because they'll run through these swamps and burn out all the vegetation and, you know, the shoebills have nothing left to stand on. Mm -hmm. So, like, it's kind of hard to, like, pass judgment on people for, you know, doing exactly what our grandparents or great-grandparents you know did in america but oh yeah yeah i mean i mean i just think about it though like what they did caused the extinction of species like the ivory-billed woodpecker and yeah for sure i mean this whole industrial development could be the death of the shoe bill yeah yeah it's a shame and like you said it's you know it's a hard thing to try to figure out the line of like you know when an area is just developing it's it's pretty tough for them to have the the means and the resources to be able to do it sustainably and not really disrupt the ecosystems in any way so yeah tough situation yeah it really is but luckily it seems like there's a lot of organizations behind trying to help preserve these shoe bills and, and i'll talk about that in a second um one one other threat to these uh birds is the hunting of a antelope called the sitatonga, which um, is a major food source for some peoples in Africa. And the mm-hmm. major way that they hunt this antelope is by starting fires, which then kind of scare the antelope out so that they can, you know, kill it and get at hmm. it. But wow. also those fires destroy shoebill habitat. Yeah. Also, shoebills are a major item in the illegal animal trade. They're highly prized on the black market, um, especially in like oil-rich Middle Eastern countries like Saudi Arabia and Dubai. It's easy to see why, because I mean, images of shoebill go viral on the internet all the time. So mm-hmm. you can, I mean, it's it's basically like the new tiger is having a shoebill, you know, that you can take pictures of and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, especially since they seem to be pretty docile, too. Um, I saw one estimate that a live shoebill chick is worth $10,000. Wow. 
Yeah, I mean that's a major <laughs> yeah economic uh you know incentive for people, especially if they're in poor countries that are politically unstable. Um, and you know a shoe bill chick you know selling to someone could be the difference between your family getting fed or not. Oh yeah. Shoe bills have been historically highly sought after by zoos. Uh, also, um, it's a little better now than it used to be, you know, but also they're being taken out of the wild because the same way, you know, people want to have them as private pets, zoos want them to attract people, you know, so that they can make money. Mm. The really unfortunate thing is that captive breeding is pretty much non-existent with these birds. It's very, very difficult. There's only been a couple cases where shoebills will breed while they're in zoos. So this leads to people constantly trying to take them from the wild. And it also is a major barrier to try to replenish the wild populations. Like if they bred pretty well in captivity, you know, you could go put some eggs or put like, you know, ones that you raised in a zoo back out in the wild to try to replenish Mm. it. But instead it's the other way. They're just constantly being taken. Man. Yeah, and it's because that these birds seem to imprint uh, really hard. Almost like, you know how duckling, it hatches from its shell. If its mom's not there, it'll imprint on like a person and follow them mm-hmm. around. And right. that's kind of how shoebills are too. Like when they hatch, when they're young, they imprint super easily on uh, their zookeepers and other people that bring them food. And they will just completely lose their wild ways and not be able to be rehabilitated at all. Oh, wow. Yeah, and that kind of gives like a sad spin on that bird sushi we were talking about earlier. Like her whole bowing and shaking her head and letting people come up and pet her. Like that's just kind of showing like she's totally lost anything, you know, any connection to the wild. Yeah. Uh, One thing that might protect these birds is, you know, of course, uh, people putting out awareness of them. Um, uh, Some areas, there's been a lot of money invested into protecting shoebill nests, um, specifically because bird tourism is becoming more popular. So some countries are able to protect these birds through bird tourism, and they'll take people out to see the birds, but then also they will uh, um, protect them throughout the year. Yeah, Uh, I I saw one area where this has been successfully done is the uh, Benguela wetlands in in Zambia, where there is now Shubil sightseeing uh, as a tourist attraction, and it helps bring some money into the local community. Another thing that kind of helps protect them is there's a lot of local folklore um, about these birds being bad luck. In Tanzania, um, but also in some other African countries, the shoebill is a bad omen. And if a fisherman or a hunter disappears in the swamp, usually they blame a shoebill for taking them. Uh-huh. So this leads to people wanting to leave the shoebills undisturbed. Yeah, well, that's the major barriers facing the shoebills. And yeah. Hopefully they recover and still regain good populations. There's not as much info in this episode as kind of my other Dirty Bird episodes, but I think it's just because these birds aren't studied a lot. But Mm. they're still pretty amazing. They look super cool. And somehow, Tim, me and you managed to go for over an hour (laughs) (laughs) bullshitting about these guys. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, what a unique bird. It's just, it's crazy that, you know, like you were touching on there, it's like they're just a, a combination of a few other, you know, com more common species that we know. And, um, you know, I'm glad you're able to still find some resources, information on them, just because, you know, it's a really cool bird to learn about. And I uh, hope all the, all the listeners enjoyed it. Well, thanks, Tim. Thanks for talking with me. And until next time, stay dirty, fellow birdies. Dirty Bird Podcast is brought to you by me, John, with my rotating panel of guests and co-hosts. Thanks for being on the show, everybody. The Dirty Bird theme song is by Ricky Pistone. Check out his groovy and hilarious music videos on YouTube. The outro music you're listening to right now is a song New York Redneck by the Sidewalk Slammers. Check them out wherever you get your music. The Dirty Bird Podcast logo is by the very talented TJ Ranoski. And of course, a shout out to my beautiful wife, Lauren, who created my original logo. Check out the show notes for this episode for a full list of credits for any bird calls or sounds used in the episode. Thanks for listening.